This is the EdTech Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. sitting there with a pen and paper. Virtual reality is an interesting medium where students can access a wide range of content. Hello and welcome to the Education Podcast brought to you by MarketScale. I'm your host, James Kent, and today we're going to be talking about some best practices for differentiation in education. How we approach education in a K-12 through setting is completely different since around March of this year. My two sons last saw the inside of a classroom on March 8th. The remainder of the school year was done online. And like most schools, my children's school was not prepared for the pandemic. And when they first sent kids home, it was thought maybe for a few weeks. That turned into May and then pretty quickly the remainder of the school year. What type of online learning plan was there? Well, I can tell you it wasn't the same educational learning experience they had when they were attending in-person studies. Kids learn differently. They have different needs. How do teachers make these assessments when the only access they have to them is online? And now fast forward to August and back to school season is upon us. One thing is for sure. There isn't anything normal about the start of the 2021 school year. Each state in the U.S. has their own challenge with the coronavirus, and no two school reopening plans look the same. Kids do need to learn, but how that education picture looks now and into the foreseeable future, it's tricky. One community's reopening plan may need to be adjusted, halted, or scrapped before the first bell rings. Joining me to help break this all down is a longstanding educational professional. Megan Axman is the reading specialist for Taft Elementary in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Megan, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Busy, very, very busy before school starts on Monday. Wow. Okay. So there's a question right off the bat. So your start, <laughs> school starts on Monday. Yes. Wow. Okay. So before we dive into that, why don't we briefly go over your background in education just for uh, the audience to, to know, you know, how you got started, et cetera. Okay. Well, um, I actually come from a family with a few teachers in it. So it was always kind of on the back burner. In college, I flip-flopped a little bit between majors and then did end up in education again. I started out as an elementary teacher then dabbled a little bit with middle school English, and then finally found my place as a K-6 reading specialist. And I've been in this position for five years now, and I love it. That's great. Yeah. All right, I'm going to set the stage here. Uh, we're going to focus on uh, Idaho for, for a moment because you said okay. school's starting on Monday. Uh, Idaho is predicted to have a 2020 population of about 1.75 million. A 2018 estimate has Boise at around 228 to 229,000 of that population. That's a lot. Yeah. The recorded number of COVID-19 cases in Idaho is currently today around close to 26,000 with 9,300 of those cases uh, from 
Ada County, yep. Where Boise is. And Boise makes up roughly half of the county's population. So cases relative to population are fairly low. Uh, not non-existent, but certainly lower than some states and counties. So you're, you're opening on Monday. What's the current back-to-school plan for Taft Elementary? Is it full-time, uh, some online hybrid, or what, what, what is the, uh, what's the picture look like? Um, For the first three weeks of school, our entire district is going to be online purely. We gave um, parents the option about a month ago to choose in-person school or online school. Our district created the Boise Online School, and about 4,000 students are enrolled there to do their entire year online. But because of the upswing in cases lately, just in our little area, our um, board decided the first three weeks will be virtual, and then they'll make decisions as they go. Okay, so when school starts on Monday, it's an online format. Yes, for everyone. And and when you mentioned this online program, was this something that existed prior to the pandemic? No, this was built over the summer by a large team of educators in our district. I guess this would be some of the learnings and plans that came about from the way things unfolded during the spring. Totally. I'm assuming that at some point in the spring, Boise closed down and kids finish their learning online. Yes. March 13th was our last day in person. Oh, so just a few days after uh, my kids were, I, I live in Vermont. So it was around the same time. Yep. Same week. But you know, one thing I noticed when my boys came home and started online learning, uh, not only are each in different grades. Uh, one was in the second grade and the other was in the sixth. They learned differently just because of that. Mm-hmm. But they both reacted differently to the experience. And, yeah. you know, my littlest had a lot of, a lot of struggles. You just, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the same as being in class and it really bothered him. The oldest, I thought it adjusted pretty well to the format, but it mm-hmm. was clear by the end of the school year that his grades in the final weeks took a dip. He kind of lost motivation. And some kids, he told me, simply didn't show up for some of their online sessions. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I think, is a real concern for parents and teachers, you know. Mm-hmm. And yet the reality is most school-age children in this country will experience some form of online learning this year. So my question is, how do educators and even parents tackle this from a learning perspective? From the teacher side, I think going into it this time, we have the advantage of we've had a little bit of experience with this and we've had a little bit more time to get ready. So this time to get ready, we've had opportunities to call parents and set up internet access and get devices into their hands already. We did our device deployment yesterday, actually. So we know every kid in our school has the ability on Monday to log in. We had them coming one-on-one on a schedule yesterday So we showed them how to log in. We showed them where they would click on Monday and we have a full day schedule. So I know in the spring, we didn't, we couldn't guarantee that all kids had equitable access to what we wanted them to have. So it was log in if you can, right? And some parents, because of all their different capacities with this, weren't able to get their kids logged on or they were only able to log on in the evening. This time around, we were starting at 8.45 in the morning and we have a schedule and the kids are going to be going online and offline all day, but they're going to be accountable for being there online so that when we're taking attendance a couple times a day. And I think for parents, the struggle is like 10 times harder almost than what we teachers are going to have to deal with. I mean, they might be at home. Some of them in our population have 
don't speak English, their native language isn't ours, they have multiple kids in the house, they might be working from home also and trying to do their own thing. So we're trying to kind of troubleshoot that as we go too. I know there's a team of us on Monday that are gonna go to students' houses just to make sure that they're able to be online on Monday. So we're really trying to navigate this while also being super flexible with what happens during the first week. Right. We're not really, I mean, we're trying to raise the bar from the spring so that they feel the importance of this and that this is going to be very different than what spring learning looked like, but also understanding that we have a million different backgrounds that we're, that we're coming at. It, it sounds like the first concern you have is making sure that all the kids are up and mm -hmm. can get online and can go through that process. But how concerned are you that some kids may not have experienced, and it sounds like the, you know a, a fair amount in the mm -hmm. spring, may not have experienced in-depth learning since pretty much late February, early March, and that they may be behind in where they should be entering their next grade. How do you assess this? Our plan of attack at my school first is going to be a feel for their social emotional health and their mental health coming back from such a long break where they might have had their own family struggles, maybe surrounding the virus or food scarcity or loss of income. So we've been doing a lot of check-ins with families and our counselor and our nurse and our support team regarding that because we know a brain in a trauma state can't begin learning, right? And so we're trying to take care of our families there. We have 97% low income families in our school. So we're really trying to make sure their needs are being met there first. And then we'll start our initial baseline assessment. So we use a couple different programs to assess early and often where they're at in their learning in any grade because of the number of refugees we have in our school and non-native speakers. We have kids that are at the emergent level of reading and math all the way up to well beyond their grade level. And we are really trying to fit their needs by grouping kids and making our teachers and paraprofessionals available to teach kids at their level. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. You're the reading specialist at Taft mm -hmm. up to the grade six. I imagine that this is a particularly difficult situation for you because mm -hmm. you're called in to help students who may be struggling to get where they need to be within the reading standards mm -hmm. in a certain grade. And this just seems to me like a situation where naturalistically you want to be in more of an intimate proximity to the student you're trying to help. Yeah, definitely. So what are the challenges you've experienced and what are some of the solutions? The number one challenge we're having right now is access to internet, making sure they're, they can be online with us and getting books into their hands. We have, because of the low income population we have, we often have families that don't have materials in their house. So we're trying to decide with lack of funding to consider too, how we can get books into our students' hands and, and kind of researching virtual options or creating virtual options for our kids to be able to see text on page. We also have the additional challenge of having interpreters from our district that often have to be online at the same time as us to help us communicate with our families that are brand new to the country because we, we truly are starting at the very, very beginning with a lot of them. And so it's the coordination of schedules, it's access to materials, it's making sure everyone's been communicated to about what's going to happen starting Monday. And our district's doing an amazing job to support us, but it's, it's a lot. And for me in reading, it will be 
you know, exposure to text, volumes and volumes of reading is what we know creates avid readers and not just able readers. And that's what we're really trying to push for. You know, when you're in this very unique position, you got you, for at least for the first three weeks, mm-hmm. you don't have ready access to the students there on at home. And as you mentioned, some of these students, their access to reading mm-hmm. is limited. What what have you found as far as an online remedy for that? Well, we have a couple different um, things in place. Our district uses a reading curriculum that luckily has an online component to it. And so our kids will be able to access that as soon as we have our logins, which they're promising us over the weekend that we'll be able to log in with their kids. And we're lucky that part of that program is actual books, is the text that goes with their lessons. Um, So as soon as we're on there, our kids will be able to see the text as long as, fingers crossed, all their technology works and continues to work. And we've, I spent some time this summer creating what I called virtual book rooms, where I have what look like real books, but they're actually links to read-alouds that I created. So kids, even if they can't read the language yet or they don't have the text in front of them, it's just it's exposure to text around all different content areas to build up their background knowledge and comprehension. So that was a large chunk of my time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, it just I think every single parent out there, if mm-hmm. they didn't already appreciate what teachers do mm-hmm. they they certainly got um, an eye-opening experience in the spring because there were moments uh, and there was more <laughs> than one where I was like I can't do this I'm not a teacher and I, I mean I I want the best for my kids but I'm like I, I'm not doing a good job here and they you know the professional teachers they're the ones that can get it done and I and I just I really applaud everything that you do that goes beyond what's in the job description. Well, thank you. I hope a lot of people saw that. I'm, I know I have a daughter that's going into second grade and I have a harder time teaching her than I do the students at my school. So I think there's just, there's a silly dynamic with with parents and their kids, right? Trying to get them to do anything. So yeah. I think I can stress mostly for all teachers that we, we still want to be the teachers, even in the online format. We don't want to push all the responsibility on our parents we want you to communicate and tell us when they're struggling what, and ask what we can do to help. We want to be the go-to person. And in no way is any teacher saying, here, parents, all of this responsibility is on you now to educate your kid. It's, it's just not like we want to teach. And if we could be in person with the kids, 100% of us would choose that option if it were safe for everyone to do so. And Absolutely. we just we can't wait till it's back to normal and we have kids in our classrooms again. This is hard for us too. And you know, you've been we've been talking about some of the solutions. How and it may be the program that you were referring to, how does iStation fit into this equation? iStation is our state's main assessment tool for reading and all the categories within reading. So my at my school we use iStation many times a week for the instructional piece, which is the self-paced learning lessons that the kids are working through based on their assessment results. We also use the assessment once a month to kind of get a gauge of where our kids are are learning, where they still need to make some growth. So we can kind of like reroute our intervention plans if we need to, to keep them growing. iStation has been a really critical tool for us to be able to kind of not just look at reading as this big overarching umbrella, but to really break it down by the subcategories and see where our kids 
really need the most help and how we can best help them. Yeah, because again, we were, you know, the idea of differentiation getting that individual attention and making mm-hmm. sure that we, you know, we can, I, I go back a ways and I just think about my days in the classroom where everyone in the classroom, depending on where mm-hmm. they were, it was kind of lumped together. And right. I think a lot of the learning wasn't geared towards the very specific needs of a student. And mm-hmm. some students struggled and continued to struggle grade after grade because there was no individual plan to make them successful. Mm-hmm. That's how it was when I, same experience for me growing up. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 I think this is a, a really smart way to go. I guess right now, three weeks online and then mm-hmm. I guess it's sort of like keep watching and you could plan for kids coming back, but it may change, correct? Exactly. Now, what about the uh, social aspect of learning? I, I believe that's a huge part of the in-class experience. Uh, yeah. and, and even if a particular school opens up, there will be social distancing. I know. In the spirit of our conversation, differentiation plays a, a role here too. Kids socialize differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some kids may be fine with less social interaction, but others really crave it. And mm-hmm. I can see how the pandemic and the measures required to keep people safe can impact those students the most, right? Which right. ultimately can impact their learning experience mm-hmm. too. Uh, have you thought through this aspect and what solutions or best practices come to mind to work through situations where kids can't, let's say, sit close to one another at lunch or even in a group table setting in the classroom uh, and even social events such as a school dance or a class field trip or sports, they're going to be impacted, kids' choruses and band lessons. I mean, it's really wide-reaching. It is. And that that really truly is the trickiest part of this all is that we know what kids need to be successful and to learn and to feel their sense of belonging, which they need to even begin to start learning, right? And so many of those unknowns are, are what are keeping us the busiest here because we know when we come in person that we want them to feel their sense of community that they've always had here. And we're exploring ways in which we can try to let them collaborate and do group work, but still maintain that social distance thing. So you've probably, we've seen all seen the pictures of like the plastic dividers that are on the internet right now, things like that at groups. Um, social distance games outside where we're teaching them all these options for play outside that don't involve being close to each other. That's in the works over here. And then still exploring online options when we're back in the classroom so they can meet face-to-face and they're looking at each other even though it's on the computer screen, but allowing them to still be a group even if they can't be sitting at the same table. Wow. I mean, you know, and of course, nobody has a crystal ball, so we don't know how this is all going to play out and and, Mm -hmm. and timelines. But do you see from this experience and all of the shift to online learning, do you you see any permanent changes that you can imagine will happen because of this and some of the different techniques that had to be employed in order to teach again? I think of a really positive change that's coming out of it for our school is paperless classrooms. I know we're always thinking about recycling and climate and how we can be the best to the earth while we have to make 8,000 copies of everything at school. And so a lot of our teachers have transitioned to being more paperless in their instruction, which which saves the earth, which saves money for our district and a number of different things. It also creates with 
you know, we look at the future of jobs for our kids where most people will have to be tech literate going into jobs that haven't even been created yet. And our kids are becoming more tech savvy, even at the pre we have preschool at our school and those kids are logging on their iPads and getting on their platforms that they're using for instruction and they can do it. And I think sometimes we assume really young kids or that can't access materials if they're online and they totally can. I mean, if you give kids an expectation and the way to get there and support them getting there, they usually do. And that's what we're seeing. That's the positivity out of this. We are seeing our kids missing school immensely. Some of our kids stable part of their life is school and they've really been craving that. So we've been trying to invite them in in safe ways now that we're back here in the building to see them and try to, we've been doing home visits. Teachers have been going out to their homes to connect with their new students and make sure there's familiar familiar faces. Our counselor has been on the phone constantly with families. So I think we worry the most about the lack of support or the lack of community that our kids might have by not being in person school. And that's the ultimate hurdle that we're facing. And one without a really clear answer because we have so many limits on what we can do with the kids right now. You mentioned that in your school that there is a heavy bilingual uh, population. Yes. And one of my questions is, again, because there's a challenge with the online learning that it might be difficult for some of these students who are trying to uh, master English as a second language. Does this uh, iStation, does that play a role in there? Like, how does it handle bilingual learning? So on iStation, when the kids will take their initial assessment and it will place them in the program, which that is appropriate for them. So when our English language learner students take the initial assessment, they're going to be placed with the very emergent skills. So they might be working on skills like letter sound, letter recognition, rhyming words, basic vocabulary. That's going to like help jumpstart them into their English speaking. We also have English language support services here. So going hand in hand with that, they're learning school vocabulary, they're learning greetings, they're learning common phrases that will help them get started at school, like what they're, what a computer's called, a pencil, grab a piece of paper, things like that. With time and exposure, it's really remarkable how far they come with the support of their teachers and the program to just get the basics down. Oh, that's great. So look, as we wind down this conversation, is there anything we haven't covered we should, any additional thoughts or best practices other educators uh, should be considering? I think it's important for teachers to always consider the main ways that they can tweak instruction to meet the needs of all kids. So at my school, we're always kind of thinking, how can I alter the culture of this room to help all kids feel welcomed, right? How can I kind of give options for the process of how kids acquire their learning, giving options for content when it's applicable, and then like giving online options for what the product will be and really playing to kids' strengths because I think the, the more we can create sustainable learning, engaging learning, is how we're going to keep these kids connected through online learning, keep parents on board and supporting us because they'll see real, authentic, relevant instruction happening. And that's that's where the growth will happen by real learning instead of just doing, doing things to keep them busy. 
Absolutely. I know this is a tough time for everyone on all sides of the education equation. Uh, there's worry, mm-hmm. concern, uncertainty, yet somehow, some way, we'll get through this as we always do, and our children will receive the education they deserve. And I, I just want to personally thank you for your devotion to this endeavor and truly yeah. wish nothing but the best for you in a safe and successful school year. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. My deepest thanks and appreciation to my guest today, Megan Axman, reading specialist at Taft Elementary in Boise, Idaho. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you. And thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Education Podcast. If you like what you heard and want to listen to more episodes, please hit the subscribe button. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast content. You can also head to marketscale.com, where you'll find a variety of content on several industries. We have articles, podcasts, videos, and more. Lots of great information for you to check out. Once again, I've been your host, James Kent. Let's talk again soon.